Hello, everybody. Eddie Chavez Calderon here with Uri Letzedek. So happy to bring in another engaging uh, conversation with us today. Thank you for all of you for, for joining our, our class today. We have a great speaker here today with Rabbi Aaron, who is a serial social entrepreneur and a professional community organizer who believes that networks are a key to shaping our reality. I'm going to go ahead and hit the record button here real quick. Hello, Eddie Chavez Calderon here with Aaron. Double feedback. There we go. Um, Rabbi Aaron is a co-founder of Makom, a national umbrella of the organization of an intentional communities in Israel, and founder of general uh, director of Hakel, the Jewish uh, Hakel, uh, the Jewish international communities incubator of the in the diaspora. Uh, Rabbi Aaron is also a thinker who believes Judaism can inspire and inform all walks of life and vice versa. He holds rabbinic uh, smihav as well as an academic degree in economics, geography, history, and philosophy of ideas, trained as an economist, a historian of ideas, and writes his dissertation of migration of ideas between U.S. Jewry and the Israeli society. He was a fellow in seven research institutions in Israel and wrote extensively on Judaism and the economic, on Judaism and economic environmentalism and other issues. He lives with his wife, Layat, and, and their five children in Shuva. And on his spare time, he is also a professional mountain biking racer and trainer. Wow, that's really, what don't you do, Rabbi? <laughs> his recent book, Seven, presented. <laughs> oh, that's, that's the fun part, you know. <laughs> that's that's really cool. Uh, inspired economics on social and, and environmental ideas. It's a pleasure to have you, Rabbi. Thank you. Thank you, Eddie. Um, so good evening. For me, it's evening already. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, Eddie, maybe you just give me the grand rules. Do you, should I... Just give a lecture. Do you want to be more of a conversation? Questions? How would you like this to uh... lecture with questions at the end, please? Okay. Um, so, um, and we have about fifty minutes, something like that. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, hello, everybody. Um, as Eddie said, my name is Aaron Ariel Avi. I live in Israel. And one of the issues I'm most uh, preoccupied with in the last uh, seven years or, or even more is the Shemitah year, the sabbatical year, Shvi'it, uh, which is one of the most radical and, and deepest contact, uh, concepts we have in uh, Jewish literature, or Jewish ideas, Jewish philosophy. And, but for many, many years, it was actually quite neglected because it applies mostly in Israel, the land of Israel. Um, most people don't really deal with that. Even people who live in Israel are some of them are not even aware that we are in a Shemitah year. It ends in five, six weeks, but we are still in a Shemitah year. And let alone what it means and what can be, what are its key concepts and what can be, if at all, its uh, applications to modern economy and modern society. So in this talk, I would like to actually um, do a brief overview of Shemitah, just to make sure we're all on the same page. Don't want to assume any prior knowledge, so uh, it's going to be quick, just to make sure we're all on the same page about what is Shemitah, basically. Then we'll try and dig, drill in and understand a few of its key concepts that relate to uh, crisis, to economic cycles, uh, to freedom, to justice, and a few other ideas. And then we'll sort of like climb back up in time to our era, to our generation, and see how those key core ideas can be applied to the modern economy and modern society. 
who are trying to avoid fundamentalism. So I'm not going to suggest that we need to shut down the market for a whole year, every seven years, because, because that's what our ancestors did uh, in Israel, uh, like two or 3,000 years ago. I'm going to try and hopefully be a bit more nuanced and complex and try to see where those ideas can actually apply in a way that makes sense to our society and economy. So let's dive right in. Uh, so first of all, what is Shemitah? Again, very briefly, just to give you an overview and to make sure that we're all uh, on the same page about it. Um, so the, first of all, the word Shemitah, uh, in Hebrew, it means to let go, to release. Uh, Shemot, something is to really to drop it or to let it go or to release it. So Shemitah is about release. We'll see in a minute of, of what exactly. Now, Shemitah is also, is also called Shvi'it, which comes from the number seven, which is actually... Uh, no, it comes. It is the number seven in Hebrew. And quite interestingly, in Hebrew and English, those numbers sound very similar, seven and sheva. But in any case, um, so it's called Shvi'it because this is the seventh year of a seven-year cycle. So we count six regular, regular years. And then the seventh year is a Shemitah year. And in the Shemitah year, we have, we have a few very exceptional mechanisms that come into play. So we're going to start with the theory, and then we're going to discuss a bit if and how, to what extent, those uh, things were actually exercised or, or uh, implemented in, in history, but just to give us the concepts first. So the first piece of Shemitah is really the Shabbat Ha'aretz, uh, Shabbat of the land, where we are supposed to, get, to leave the land fallow, give it a rest, and we're not allowed to plow, to plant new plants uh, or trees, to put seed in the ground, and all the produce that grows out of itself that year, not out of itself, actually the result of the prior six years, that we have prepared towards Shemitah, everything that grows on that year is actually ownerless. Ownerless means hefker in Hebrew, means that it's not owned by anyone, and anyone can take it. So, uh, not, not just to, you know, I just said that Shemitah is a radical idea, just try to think about it. So you as a farmer, you invest six years in plowing and planting and pruning, and everything you need to have a nice orchard of lemons, or whatever it is that you grow, and all of a sudden, when the sun sets on Rosh Hashanah, the first day of the year, of the Shemitah year, those lemons are not yours anymore. They belong to, to everyone, including to the, to the animals. And anyone can walk into your field and take not as much as they want. They can take enough for one or two or three days. So no one can take the whole field, neither you. People can take as much as they need for a few days of substance. So that's one key idea of Shemitah, the Shabbat Aretz. The second key idea is... Uh, debt release, monetary Shemitah or Shemitat Ksafim, letting go of funds, literally. Which means that at the end of the Shemitah year, uh, after we left the whole, the, the land fallow for a whole year, so the end of the Shemitah year, uh, all the debts, not exactly all the debts, but some kinds of debts, we, we won't go into all the details now, uh, actually get released or canceled. So, Eddie, if I lend you money sometime during those six years or during the Shemitah year, and you haven't paid me back, for some reason, uh, comes the end of the Shemitah year, and that's it. I'm not allowed to ask you to pay me back. I'm not allowed to remind you even about it. That that, that doesn't exist. You can still pay it back if you want to be a like a more, a more righteous man or to you know, fulfill your duties. But even then, you need to you, you need to tell me that you're giving me this money as a gift, not as a payment on the loan, because the loan doesn't exist anymore. It's been released. It's been it's in the Shemitah. It's been dropped. So that's the second thing. Uh, then we have 
after the Shemitah year, we have, we have what we call Hakel. Hakel comes from the word community. It's also the name of the project that I manage. Um, Hakel literally means it's an imperative. It's to, to create a community or to gather, gather the people. So after we left the land fallow for a whole year, we released all the debts for the last day of the Shemitah year. Then on two, week, two weeks later on Sukkot, the festival of Sukkot, in the eighth year, the beginning of the, of the next cycle, we celebrate Hakel, which means that everybody, again, in theory, would come to Jerusalem. Uh, all ages, young, old, men, women, everybody would come to Jerusalem to celebrate our nation as a community. So these are the, the three basic things of Shemitah itself in the Shemitah year. And then on top of that, there's another idea, which even goes farther and deeper and is even more radical and more challenging, which is called the Yovel. Yovel meaning the Jubilee. Uh, now the Yovel is the 50th year. Why? Because we, seven, we, we count seven cycles of seven years. That's 49 years. So the 49th year is a Shemitah year. And then the 50th year is also a Shemitah year. And on top of that, it has, so we have two Shemitah years in a row, which is a bit tough not to work the land, again, in an agricultural society uh, for two years in a row. But on top of that, we have two more things happening in the Yovel. One is that all the, all the slaves are being released. They have to be released. And the second is that all the lands are to be returned to their original owners. So if, you know, I had a piece of land at the begin, beginning of those 50 years and I sold it to Jessica and Jessica sold it to Nick and Nick sold it to Eddie and whatever, so all those transactions are being tracked and monitored. Comes the end, the Yom Kippur on the, on the 50th year of the Yovel. Eddie needs to give me back my land, which is then, which is swapped no, no matter how many hands. It goes back to me, free of charge. Um, and if anyone is a slave, again, back then slavery was uh, unfortunately a common practice. Uh, all the slaves are, are, are to be released, which is also a pretty genuine idea in the economy of the time. So. These are the, the, the few basic elements of Shemitah. There are a few more that relate to private property and the, and the cycle of redemption. I'll, we might get to them later, but these are the core pieces. The Shabbat the land fellow, follow, uh, monitor Shemitah, releasing and canceling all the debts, Hakel gathering as a community at the end of Shemitah year, and Yovel, Jubilee, which means, um, which implies releasing all the slaves and return, returning all the lands to their original owners. So, um, Eddie, I'm going to continue without questions. What questions will take at the end? So, the question is, what was Shemitah like? So, when I when I do this usually in a, in a in a room with people, and we start like asking, okay, so how would Shemitah look like, and uh, how how would people feel? So, some people relate to Shemitah as a very uh, positive, maybe even utopian year. And some relate to it as, as maybe a very challenging challenging year. So I would like to briefly share a few sources that relate to Shemitah. I'm going to share my screen. I'm going to read them out loud so uh, those of you who are only listening can also uh, take part in the conversation and the learning. And we're going to try and take a look at a few perceptions on Shemitah and then try and, as I said, drill down and ask, okay, so what is it actually? And what's going on there? And how can we, uh, what are the key ideas? Um, underlying Shemitah. So I want to start with this piece from Rav Shaul Mortira. He's, uh, I assume not, not too many people know him. He was actually a very interesting guy. He was a rabbi of Baruch Spinoza, 
16th century in Amsterdam. Um, and, he, and he wrote the following. He, like many rabbis over the ages, he wrote a book on the weekly portions. And this is a, a short excerpt, excerpt of what he wrote on the on Parashat Bahar, which is at the end of Leviticus. That's where the, the core of Shemitah appears. The other part of Shemitah, by the way, the monetary Shemitah, appears this week, Parashat Re'eh in the Deuteronomy. Uh, so these are the two main places where Shemitah appears, and there's another verse in Shemot, which it, it, it just mentioned for uh, in one verse. So he says the following: For they are abandoning everything in the year of the Shemitah, meaning when we all leave everything, we leave the land fallow in the Shemitah year, and, and all the that to the cattle and the beast is a sign of what was and will again be. For no, no longer will they eat bread by the sweat of their brow, and the wild animals will not harm the cattle. He's alluding to the scene in the Garden of Eden and to the curse actually after the Garden of Eden that we have to walk the land. Uh, but he's also alluding to Isaiah's prophecy about this peace that will rule the, the earth one day, that not only men will be and humans will be in peace among themselves, but even the animals will not uh, harm one another anymore. And he says, continues, so therefore, whoever observes the mitzvot which signify this, will be privileged to experience all of these things. And there's another piece by Clea Carr, another very important commentator. I'm going to read it from the middle. Um, so, sorry, so he says, the year of Shemitah promotes a sense of fellowship and peace. So he also alludes to Shemitah as a very uh, genuine, a very uh, utopian idea. For one is not allowed to exercise over, over any of the seventh year produce, the right of private ownership. As we said, all the fruits, those lemons that I, that I worked so hard on are not mine anymore in the Shemitah year. And this is undoubtedly a, a primary factor in promoting peace. Since most dissension originates from the attitudes of mine is mine, meaning one person claiming it is all mine and the other also claiming it is all mine. But in, in the seventh year, in the Shemitah year, all are equal. And this is the real essence of peace. So he alludes to the concept of letting go of property or private property in the Shemitah year. Um, and there are many more commentators like this. Now, what's, what's common to many, many of them is that they, they didn't live in the land of Israel. And I'm not criticizing any of them. I'm not, in, in, I'm not anywhere near their level in, in, in Torah scholarship and righteousness. I'm just setting the fact that many of those commentators lived in Europe or other places in the Middle Ages. Uh, and when you look in earlier sources, in the Talmud that writes about the Shemitah year, in um, some external sources, such as the uh, writings that we have from the Roman period, you can see that actually Shemitah was not such a fun year. It was actually a very, very tough year. Now, just to, to make it more vivid, make it more uh, lively, by telling you a story of how one halakha, one Jewish law actually evolved, which tells the story of how difficult Shemitah was. So, Basically, one of the rules of Shemitah says that if I have a field, uh, obviously I'm not allowed to plow the field or plant anything during the Shemitah year. That's obvious. But I'm, not so, I'm also not allowed to prepare the field for plowing, in, for, for plowing and planting next year. So, for example, I'm not allowed to clean the field from rocks and stones and branches uh, just in order to, so it would be easier and more quicker for me to plow it right after Rosh Hashanah in the eighth year, after the Shemitah year ends. Now, this is very similar to, to Shabbat, for example, that you're not 
For example, it's allowed to cut uh, vegetables for a salad on Shabbat. But if you do it to prepare for, for cooking them after Shabbat, that's not allowed. It's about preparation. Now, on the other hand, uh, it is permissible to take the rocks uh, out of your field if you need them to build a house, for example, which is allowed on Shemitah. So this is a very key concept of Jewish law in general, That just, just uh, as, as a side note, that many laws in, Jew, in, in Jewish law in Halakha actually relate to the intention, to the kavanah, to the state of mind of the, of the actor. So if your intention, while externally it can look the same, when one person picking rocks out of his field, the intention matters. If the intention is to clean the field, to plow it right after the Shemitah, it's not allowed. If it's to build a house because you need just the rocks because that's the local material you have, it is allowed. Okay, so far so good. So the Talmud says in Masechet Shvit, in the, the, the tractate that deals with all the laws of Shemitah, it says that what people started to do is actually either build many houses or even worse than that, they started taking the rocks and that just saying that they needed to build a house without building a house. So it was actually, it was actually a loophole. And people took advantage of that loophole to clean their fields. So the sages came up with another rule to try to block this loophole. So they said, okay, we see what you're doing. So from now on, uh, we're going to allow you to take rocks if you need to build a house only from your neighbor's field, not from your own field, only from someone else's field. Now, the reasoning behind it is that they assumed that um, no one will have an incentive to actually clean somebody else's field uh, if they don't really need to build a house. Now, the problem is that they still have the loophole open. And I can see your smile, Nick, because do you want to suggest what you, what, what you have in mind? What would you do? Yeah, because I'll, I'll make a pact with my neighbor. You clear my land, I'll clear your land. Exactly. I see you yeah. have a Talmudic uh, mind. So that's exactly what people started doing. They started doing, in Hebrew, in Israel, we call this a kombina, like, uh, which comes from the word combination, but it has a very negative meaning uh, in, in the Israeli context. I don't know if negative, it's like it's a mischief, okay, in English, basically. So that's exactly what people started doing. So they started making those contracts that I clean your field, you clean my field, uh, and then on the day we have a clean field, and we said that it's for building, building a house. And then there's a story. I mean, the, the, the end of the story is that uh, Rabbi Akiva uh, was walking around the land, as, well, as was his custom. Um, you know what, maybe I'll, I'll just share it again so you can see what I'm referring to, those who are watching us. So the, the whole story is here. If anyone wants the, the full uh, source sheet, I'm happy to send it to you. And I'm reading uh, these lines. So Rabbi Akiva was performing his investigation of people's observance of Shemitah, as was his custom. So like today, we have, you know, like Beitin or a Kashrut committee that would go around and see if people are abiding to the laws of Kashrut or not. So Rabbi Akiva was like in this ancient Kashrut committee who would walk around the land to see if people are keeping Shemitah or not. He saw a person pruning his vineyard. So in this case, it's not collecting rocks, it's pruning the vineyard, but it's, it's the same idea. You can prune the vineyard if you need the branches for something else, but not for the, for the benefit of the vine itself, not for the benefit of the, of the plant itself. Of the tree. He said to him, so Rabbi Akiva tells, tells this man, is it not forbidden to do so on Shvit? Like, don't you know you're not allowed to prune the vineyard on the sabbatical year? The farmer said to him, I need the vines to use as netting for an olive press. So he needed them as weights, actually, just, just to 
For us, back then, how do you produce olive oil? People actually use this to this day. First of all, you crush the olives a bit. Then you put them in a basket and you just put heavy weight on the basket. And from the weights, it takes a few days, but all the olive, all the oils is squeezed from the olives. You collect them, and that's how you get olive oil. So he says, he tells Rabbi Akiva, I know, I just need something to press the olives to, to make oil. Rabbi Akiva said to him, actually, Rabbi Akiva gives up at this point. He does not come up with a new rule. He does not try to close the loophole again. And he says, the heart knows whether your intent is for netting or for perversity. Then Hebrew, if you can see it uh, up here, it says, So in Hebrew, it's a very beautiful play of words. Akal is the basket. Akal kalot is this kombina, mischief, this mis misbehavior. But in any case, the idea is, the Rabbi Akiva actually gives up and he says, you know, that, that's as far as I can go as a leg legislator and, and a law enforcement uh, force, so to speak. I can't judge. I can't investigate what's going on in your heart. I can only see what you do externally. And from this point on, I'm going to leave it to your own discretion. And it's up to you whether you act properly or, or not. I'll leave it to you. It's, it's your heart. It's your, it's your jurisdiction. And with this, the story ends. Now, this story can tell us a lot about the relationship between the, the Chachamim, the Rabbanim, the Rabbis, and, the, and everybody else, the masses. It can tell us a lot about authority, about loopholes, about halakha, uh, about the intention of the heart. We can, we can use this story for many, many purposes. I want to take one point relevant to us, to this conversation, which is the example of how difficult it was to keep Shemitah. And evidence is that people try to bypass Shemitah all the time. And if you read the entire tractate, if you study the entire tractate of Shvi'it in the Talmud Yerushalmi, you can see that a very large proportion of that tractate, disproportionate to other tractates compared, compared to other tractates, is dedicated not to how to keep Shemitah. It actually deals with what can we do about those who do not keep Shemitah, about those who are trying to game the system, those who are trying to use all the loopholes, those, those who are trying to bypass Shemitah. How can we actually um, deal with them? Which is, which is an example of how tough it was to keep Shemitah. We can also see it in some Roman writings that we have from the, from the area. Um, we can see, for example, Sefer Maccabim, which is not Roman, it's from the Greek period, um, that, that tells how, how tough it was to keep Shemitah and how people barely had anything to eat do, during the year of Shemitah, which was also the year of the rebellion of um, of the, Chasmon, of the Chashmonaim, the Chasmonites. There are many, many other places that, that show it was that it was a very difficult year. Now, with this in mind, I want to start diving deeper and ask um, Eddie, Nick, Craig, I see also online, if you want to answer, that's great. If not, I can try and uh, you know, give the answers I usually get in this, in this session. Uh, you know, you, in principle, our Torah, our tradition, our thought tradition is about making the world a better place. It's not about making people miserable. It's not about torturing people. It's not about making people go hungry. Yes, we have a few fast days over the year, but it's not it's sort of like one day. It's not too bad. We have Shabbat, which is a constraint, but it also has lots of benefits that we get together as a family and we get to have some, some rest. Uh, we have the laws of Kashrut, which are also are constraints, but they don't make you miserable. Okay, they don't, don't make you suffer. It's a constraint, but you get some benefit uh, because it, it creates a sense of belonging, it creates a spiritual meaning, creates many, many positive things. 
Then my question would be, why would our Torah impose something such as Shemitah? Which is, which is tough, which is people went, went hungry. Uh, people were devastated, they were terrified, they were they're living in, in uncertainty. Why, why do that? Why, why actually, why actually inject Yannick? Well, I'm, I'm just thinking like, okay, so God made Shabbat and we are meant to emulate God and rest on Shabbat. Maybe the earth is supposed to emulate God and rest on the Shemitah year? Is that? Well, yeah, first of all, that's a good, that's a good answer because uh, if you read, you read the verses themselves, so Shemitah is compared to Shabbat many times. First of all, this idea of seven, it's, it's also called Shabbat Haaretz, the Shabbat of the land. Yeah, it's definitely tied to, to Shabbat in many ways. Um, but, but what else? What can be the benefit in a crisis? If, if we take this line of interpretation of Shemitah as a crisis, not necessarily as a utopia, what can be, can be the benefit of, of a crisis? Well, I'm just relating it to Sukkot, for instance, where Sukkot, we're, we're meant to remember that our homes are not permanent. Nothing is permanent on earth, right? And is the right. Shemitah year similar to that? Like, it w- we can't always expect the land to produce everything for us. We need to make preparations for the possibility of calamities, of famine, of war, you know? Like, is it meant to teach us this? Like, being prepared? Yeah, yeah, I think beautiful. I, I, you know, actually, what you said alludes and connects also to the to last week's parasha three days ago. Okay, parashat Ekev. Um, so it, it tells about the land of Israel. I mean, there are many things there, but one of the few of the verses deal about talk about the land of Israel and how how great it is and how beautiful it is and how much water it has and uh, how much natural resources it has. Now. I live in Israel, okay? I was born in Israel, I grew up in Israel. I was a tour guide, I, I was in the military, I still serve in the military. I know this, it's a very small country. I know it inside out, I know every hiking trail, every every natural reserve, every lake and stream and river. And when I read those verses, I, my reaction is, come on, this is not, I mean, Israel is beautiful, but it's not a land of flowing water and streams and natural resources. I mean, it's the only corner in the Middle East that does not have oil. It's the only corner that does... Uh, yes, we found some gas in the sea. Yeah, it's a very small amount, relatively. I mean, come on! This is not the land of Israel. What are you talking about? Uh, and then it goes even worse than that. Again, worse, as, as, just as a, as a figure of speech, just to make the point. At the end of the parasha, it says, the land of Israel is actually better than the land of Egypt. It, it's, it's actually... It's, it's good for us to leave the land of Egypt and go to the land of Israel uh, where, because in Egypt, you need to water the plants. Uh, it, it says, you need to do legwork to irrigate the fields. While in Israel, the rain falls and everything gets irrigated uh, automatically. But again, yes, we had, a, we had three years of nice rains in Israel, but before that, we had six, we had six years, years of drought. The, 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 the Bible itself, it's, it's not about climate change. I mean, it, it's becoming worse, but 3,000 years ago, Abraham had to leave the land because there was famine. It was a drought. Uh, Isaac as well. It, well, then he didn't leave, but he was supposed, he, he almost left. Jacob, this is like generation after generation. Every 10, 15, 20 years, you have a drought and a famine in, in the land of Israel. So how can it be better than Egypt, which was the home of the largest empire of the time? Yeah. Um, yeah, do you want to say something? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was thinking from an agricultural point of view, I think it 
Shemitah is pretty smart because it helps alleviate the tension of continuous cultivation for years and years and on. It allows for a better standing for maybe the ground to have peace and some of those minerals to, to come back into the agricultural region. I know a lot of the native communities, the way they would cultivate is that they would move their, their crop areas from, from one area to the other and leave one area alone. So I'm thinking like if, if, if Shemitah goes into full effect where folks, you know, I, I, I guess like today in modern age, I know it works differently, but back then agriculturally it would really make sense, you know, because then the next year, all those minerals are back in the soil and it, it right. produces a, a, a better flow of, of, of food. Right. So, so yeah, we'll get to this also in a minute because that's another idea. But it's also simple because why do it all everybody at once? Now, just to, to close off that idea. So the difference between the land of Israel and Egypt is that the benefit of being in the land of Israel is that you have a, a, a connection to God. God speaks to you through the amount of rain. You get to know that. So going back to what you also said, Nick. So Shemitah in a way teaches us, educates us that nothing is to be taken for granted in this world, like, like the Nile in Egypt. It's, it's taken for granted, like you don't need any connection to God, you just have the Nile. In Israel, you need to have this relationship. So Shemitah sort of like forces you into this stress and crisis to cultivate this relationship, uh, maybe even to do some sort of a test of, of faith. Now, there are also more earthly reasons. Like you said, Adi, um, today we know to explain it bi biologically, but for example, all kinds of minerals and nitrogen, if you cultivate the land again and again, you plant the same crops again and again, they get depleted and the productivity actually falls over time. Now, farmers in ancient times, well, they didn't know to explain this the way we explain it with all the fancy names and the fancy minerals, but they could just see that if you plant the same thing again and again and again, the productivity uh, falls down or, or drops down. Now, the way to solve it is, uh, is actually, like you said, so, uh, sorry. Um, so, uh, this is, uh, sorry, just a second. Um, now, what people in ancient times would do is to rotate the fields and leave every piece followed at a different time. Now, the challenge of Shemitah is that we all do it at the same time for all the lands. Now, by the way, the same goes for monetary Shemitah, for the Shemitah Ksafim, okay? Um, so, what, what, one thing that a lot of people don't know is that actually this idea was not originally just a Jewish idea. Uh, many rulers in the ancient times uh, used to do clean slates. Uh, Babylonian, Mesopotamian, Assyrian kings would do clean slates. They would release all the debts. Uh, in their country. Uh, now, the reason they would do that wasn't because they were such nice people or philanthropists. The reason they would do it is that what would happen over a course of several years is that, for example, uh, if I lend you money, Eddie, and you fail to pay it back because it was a drought, because you didn't manage your finances correctly, whatever, for whatever reason, you don't pay it back and you default, uh, the recourse, the collateral against the loan I gave you is your land. So if you default, I take your land as, as a recourse. And if that's not enough to uh, actually uh, pay back the loan, I take you as a slave, sometimes your entire family. 
Now we have written evidence from Babylon and other places like 3,500 years ago, 3,000 years ago, that people actually sold their mothers into slavery to cover their debts. Now, why, why the mother? Because if the, if the father passed away, so your mother is a widow. And widows back then had no rights. That's why the Torah, and again, we're, we're in Uri Tzedek, uh, we're talking also about justice. Uh, sometimes, you know, we tend to read those verses as like, okay, yeah, we need to take care of the widows and the orphans. Okay, so what? But you need to put it in context. Because back then, widows and orphans had no rights. They had no legal standing. That's why the Torah goes against the grain of the time and tells you that you have to, to, to provide for those people specifically, the most vulnerable people in your society. Now, what would happen over, over a few years is that if I lend you money, you default, then I lend money to Nick and he also defaults, more and more people default. Uh, after five, 10 years, me and a group of, uh, and another small group of, uh, of other people who, who are the lenders, who are the creditors, actually get to own most of the lands and even most of the people, like the story of Joseph. So it all gets concentra concentrated. And then the rest of the people have no land and no freedom and actually no hope. Now, when the king wants to actually recruit an army to defend his country or to fight another king, so that's what kings used to do, uh, no, no one would come. Because if your population has no hope, it's very difficult to motivate people who have no hope and have nothing to lose to do something. Because they would say, what are you going to do? Kill us? Okay, kill us. Like, we have nothing to lose anyway. We have no freedom, no means of production. Uh, no, we're not going to go on your, on your wars and, and risk our lives. Uh, so they would proclaim a clean slate and return, uh, people, give, give people their, back their freedom and lands uh, as a means to preserve their control over society, actually. Usually it would happen when a new king would come into rulership or the, the king's, king's birthday. Now, this also explains... Jubilee. Why Jubilee focuses on releasing slaves and returning the land to their owners in order to reverse this cycle, to reset the system. That's the whole point behind, behind the event. It's not just two random uh, righteous, uh, righteous uh, things to do. But the big difference between the Jewish model and the model that was prevalent back then is that it's, it's national and it's collective. It's all the lands at the same time it's all the loans at the same time. It's all the slaves at the same time. And the most important point is, it was expro expropriated from the hands of the king. So the king no, no, no longer has any say on when it's gonna happen in other world terms. It's all predetermined, it's like a constitution. And we can calculate from here to the end of time, when exactly will be uh, any Shemitah year, that release, we can calculate all of this in advance for, uh, all, all, all eternity. Now, beyond all that, I would like to offer one thought. Maybe, maybe just to, to, to wrap up what we said. So we talked about Shemitah as one, on one hand, it could be a utopian year. On the other hand, it can be actually a crisis. We chose to go with the other path of interpretation for this, for this talk. And then we asked why have this crisis? And Nick, Eddie, you came up with some very good ideas. It's, it's a test of faith, it, it brings us together. Uh, it helps us water the land to keep their productivity. Uh, and then we explain how it was all, all made collectively and also actually taken out of the hands of the kings, which is, by the way, of, uh, another very important uh, like justice-oriented Jewish innovation, which is that everybody are equal in front of the law. This wasn't the case up until then. Kings were always above the law, and there was another legal system for all the rest. 
uh, in our system, everybody are the same under the same rules and regulations. Now, with this in mind, we'd like to offer another thought, and then we'll take it back to our modern economy and modern society. Uh, crisis has a benefit in, in and of itself, okay? Because crisis is actually the, 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 the bearer of innovation, of entrepreneurship, of progress, actually. Because changes in society usually don't happen when everything is okay. Where people have a tendency to, to, for inertia, to just continue what they're used to do, not making any changes, not rocking the boat. When you have a crisis, that's when you have an opportunity to actually change things, to introduce new ideas, to implement new ideas. Those new ideas might have been around for a very long time, but no one really listened to them. When there's a crisis, that's when all of a sudden, prime ministers and presidents go to the academia, to, profess to the professors and ask them, do you have any idea on what to do about the inflation rate or what to do about this economic crisis or what to do about climate change or what to do about any other crisis? They start uh, looking for those ideas seriously only when the crisis hits and not beforehand. And people knew about this economic crisis coming. People knew about climate change coming for a long time. Um, by the way, economic, an economic crisis coming cycles uh, roughly every, every seven to 10 years. If you just think about the last three decades, uh, 2001 and two, we had the dot-com bubble. Then 2008, we had the subprime crisis started in America. 2015, we had uh, the fire uh, stock exchanges and markets collapsed. And now 2022, we have this crisis. I'm not alluding there's something mystical here. I'm just saying that this, this cycle of seven years is pretty much the time it takes for bubbles to build up and then they explode. And this happens in cycles again and again. Now, the, what you can achieve with a pre-planned crisis, with, with a crisis like Shemitah, which is a pre-planned crisis, you know it's coming, you know the terms, you know how long it's going to get, it's going to last. So it's kind of similar to what you said earlier, Nick. What you achieve is two main things. A, you get the benefit of a crisis. You get this injection of innovation, entrepreneurship. People have to think out of the box. Uh, they need to prepare. They learn how to prepare to crisis. And also the other thing you get is to alleviate to some extent the frequency and the harshness or, or impact of unplanned crisis. Because if you know it's coming then you're, and you're used to crisis, then when a surprise crisis hits you, you're, you're, more, you're more well fit to deal with that. Now there are many examples to, to exemplify, to make this more real. The, the one thing I, I like to use, and Eddie, you mentioned in the, in the you know, introduction that I'm a, a mountain biker. Uh, I, I do races, I, I do technical uh, riding and instructions, and everybody who deals with uh, mountain biking or cycling in general, or running, swimming, Ironman, all, all, what we, all of what we call endurance sports, uh, know that the most effective way to train that is proven itself over the years is what's called HIT, H double I T. That's high intensity interval training, okay? Uh, now, the idea is that if you wanna improve your fitness and you go outside and just you know cycle as hard as you can until you drop dead and then you do it again and again, that won't improve your fitness. That will actually deplete your resources, your body won't, won't be able to recover. At the end of the day, you will harm your fitness and lower it instead of improving it. Uh, the way to do it is, yes, you need to build a base first. You need to do some long rides and running, but that, that's, that's basic. But to improve, you need to do those interval trainings. And interval training works in a way that it's pre-planned. You don't just go out and improvise. You have a plan, 
that you get from your coach or download from the web or you plan for yourself. Uh, for example, it says, you know, you do warm, warm up and then you do five minutes uh, low intensity and then two minutes high intensity cycling. Then five and two, five and two. Or it, there are many, many different uh, variations of this. There are uh, escalating pyramids, declining pyramids, all kinds of intervals. But the idea is that you make progress, you improve your fitness only when you push the limits a bit. Only in those two minutes of intensive, more intensive cycling or running or swimming than, than you're used to, that's when you actually improve your fitness. That's when you actually uh, get this benefit. And then you need to calm down, let the body recover and do it again and again and again. So it's another worry. I think this, this, can, this can also explain the idea behind Shemitah. Uh, how we can actually, so to speak, train our society in pre-planned crisis, in those pre-planned intervals. So we both get this like fitness benefit for our society, this resiliency of the society, these new ideas, this innovation. And we also get uh, some immunity to unplanned crisis. Now, before we jump into our economy, I would just like to tie it all back into one uh, one last key idea of Shemitah, and then we'll see how it can apply to our to our generation, which is actually the idea of progress or, or of linear uh, time thinking. So I, I want to start with a, just to, um, to 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 stress the point. I'm going to give you a quick uh, math quiz. Okay, Nick, Eddie, are you with me? It's not going to be too difficult. Okay, don't worry. If I give you the following series of numbers. Uh, I want you to tell me what will be the next numbers in this series, okay? So the series is two, four, six, eight. What will come next after eight? Ten. Ten. And then? Twelve. Twelve, fourteen, right? It, it seems obvious. And it's correct. I'm not trying to tweak it. It's, it's a correct answer, okay? However, if we were to ask this question, uh, going again back in time, ancient Mesopotamia, Babylon, Syria, some 3,000 years ago, 3,500 years ago, some parts of Greece, the answer would be 2468642, because the mindset was cyclical. The mind, my mindset was uh, about cycles that repeat themselves. Now, both, both answers are correct. You can build a function to produce the first series or the second one. Both are correct. It's about a paradigm. It's about a mindset. Now, what Shemitah did by actually detaching itself from the king's birthday or the king's, uh, or the day they came into, into power from those cycles, it became something independent that grows over time. Uh, so Shemitah and a few other key biblical ideas actually led the the... the, the the infrastructure and the groundwork for the, the perception of linear time, okay, which was a huge revolution. Just try to think, uh, the pro what we know, what we know today as progress, as science, as innovation, it's all built on the idea of linear time instead of cyclical time. Now, if you if you know history, for example, then you know that the way they, they counted years back then wasn't continuous. Every time a new king came into power, they would start counting the years according to the new king. So it would be uh, year one of King Cyrus, Koresh, and year two of King Cyrus. And when he died, it would be year one of his son, and again and again, because in cycles. Uh, 
what seems obvious to us that we that we count all the years in our case you know we uh, in the Jewish case we count it from the creation of the world in the, in the Christian case which is also the civilian case we count it from the uh, year zero when Jesus uh, was born but in any case we have this linear idea of time uh, this idea of progress which I dare to say was put forward first by Moses and then Isaiah Jeremiah a few of the Hebrew prophets who built a vision to talk about vision for hundreds and thousands of years into the future now let's try and take all of this uh, together and see how it can uh, somehow apply to our modern economy so we have this idea of a pre-planned crisis okay that can uh, sort of like encourage and catalyze innovation and entrepreneurship and progress and also alleviate the, the harshness of unplanned crisis and we have this idea of moving forward and we also have this idea of jubilee which is preventing random changes um, from enslaving people for, for, for life okay because we talked about this mechanism so if i take a loan and for some reason i go into a problem and i can't pay it back in ancient times that that's the end i say my land i say myself and i'm a slave until the, the day I, the day i die but Jubilee and also another part of which is the the private slave cycle that every, uh, a Hebrew slave cannot be cannot be a slave for more than six years they have to be released either after six years or the Jubilee whatever comes first so this idea is, is is what it teaches us is that we want to build a society that yes on the one hand we understand life happens unplanned crisis happen sometimes people take loans that are irresponsible and they can't pay them back so there has to be some some collateral again in the ancient mindset today we have other mechanisms in place for this but on the other hand we're not willing to live in a society where one random mistake or uh, that might have nothing to do with you it was just a uh, force majeure something that happened without your, your out, of, out, of, out of your control will actually derail your life entirely and put you on a, on a path for eternal slavery and one one service and to become a bond servant until the, the, the end of your life and, and your family. Now let's try and look, use this idea to quickly observe some modern economic challenges that we have. So usually when I do this in a room, I ask people, uh, so I'm just going to do this as a thought experiment. You know, if people are, um, I would ask like, who, who in the room about the age of uh, 60 or 50 uh, still working the same job that they started working on, let's say, 20 years ago. On average, most hands would hands of the people above that age uh, would rise. When asked the same question of people under 40, no one would raise their hand. Even when I shortened the amount of time, okay, so who still works in the same job they worked in 10 years ago? Almost no one. Five years, maybe a few. Two years, that's when you get more hands in the air. Now, the point of time we make is that in our generation, our age group, our you know, millennials, Z-Gens, this age group, which is now coming into age, uh, we live in a very, very volatile job market. And for good and for bad. People change jobs, they change positions, they change vocations uh, very frequently. It has to do with globalization and technological changes and many other things. I won't go into all of this. I can just share one prediction that many economists uh, agree on is that the professions and vocations that our children are going to work in have not been invented yet. 
So we can't even prepare them to the future because we have no idea what the future is going to be like. I mean, just, just think about, about yourself. You know, like if someone told, would have told you 15 years ago or 20 years ago that one day there will be a profession, a full-time, very good-paying job uh, called a LinkedIn Profiles Editor or a Facebook Page Manager or a TikTok uh, star or YouTuber. I mean, people can make millions on YouTube. And it's, not, not, it's something that no one could foresee uh, 20 years ago. And we have no idea what's going, what's, what, what the future holds. We can know, for example, that bus drivers and taxi drivers are going to go out of job in, the, in about 10 years when autonomous cars become uh, more stable and, and efficient. It's going to, when, it, when it happens, the change is going to be very, very quick, very drastic. And so for many reasons, people lose their jobs or leave their jobs and move to another phase in life. Uh, very frequently, it's going to intensify. Now, I would like to offer uh, the following thought, that we can think of any one of those job positions in the job market, we can think of each one of them as a crisis, okay? On the one hand, it's great. It gives you, as, individ as an individual, a lot, of, a lot of flexibility and a lot of you know, creativity and innovation. You can reinvent yourself. That's great. On the other hand, and we saw, we saw it on COVID, uh, for example, people in the tourism industry that all of a sudden lost their jobs. It took them a year and a half, two years to recover. Many of them are still not recovered. Many of them moved to other jobs. They, they can go back. They're... Sometimes people get just uh, thrown off the, off the train in, in, in this uh, crazy volatile job market. It's not, not everybody are able to do those transitions uh, very efficiently and, and smoothly. So what if we take this idea of a pre-planned crisis and the idea of that we don't want random changes in the job market to derail people's lives? Yes, they won't become slaves because we don't have slavery anymore, but they could become unemployed or underemployed, um, sometimes because reasons that, that were beyond their control, because their profession become obsolete and no, no, no one saw it coming. It, it just happened one day. Um, so why don't we take this idea of a pre-planned crisis and trying to keep people safe, at least to give them some recourse, some, some way out of those, um, if they get derailed, and try to apply it to the modern economy. Now, someone already tried to do that. His name was Charles Elliott. He was the president of uh, Harvard University. Uh, and in 1880, he actually invented the, the sabbatical year that we all know to this day in the, in the, in the academia, in academic institutions. Now, the sabbatical year, in the academia was 100% inspired by the biblical uh, sabbatical year. It's one year every, every six years. Um, and, but what he said and what other people said back then, uh, other academic institutions that tried to mimic him, uh, and then it spread out to the entire world, they said, you know, it's not for the professor. It's not to give a long vacation to professors. It's for an institution. Because people go out for one year, they do, it's a paid year, by the way, of course, it's not vacation. Uh, they get trained, they get better skills, and they come back to us as better teachers. So what if we take this idea, it doesn't have to be one year every six years, as I said in the beginning, uh, we should be aware of fundamentalism. We're not trying to do copy paste. We're trying to use the key ideas and, and use them as inspiration for the modern economy. What if we, Take this idea of a sabbatical year and expand it 
Now, it doesn't have to be one year or six years. It can be six months, every five years. It can be a personal cycle, not everybody together at the same time. But, and in my book, by the way, which is just want to show you a copy. So this is the book I just published called Seven uh, Schmitta-Inspired Social and Economic Ideas. I also, also share the link for it on Amazon uh, on the chat. Um, so the idea is, uh, so, so in, in the book, I give a more like detailed account and detailed proposal on, on how this can be done in, in some sort of an agreement between the employees, employers, and the government. I won't go into all the details now, but there is an option to come up with a model that actually enables people these transition periods. Again, these are not long vacations. Vacation is something else. These are transition periods uh, for you to update your skills and upgrade and, upgrade and, and, and come back a better and more productive person for yourself and for society in general. You can come back to the previous job or move to another one, but it's a pre-planned crisis that enables you a more smooth transition to the next phase. Now the question would be, and with this we conclude and leave some a few minutes for questions if you want. The question would be, okay, so how are we going to uh, fund this? Who is going to pay for, for those uh, transitions? Which is a very good question that any economist should ask. Now, I don't think that's something that the government can or should fund. Uh, I don't think it's, it's something that private philanthropists can or should fund. Uh, I think that who can fund this is us by ourselves. And the way to do it is actually use the, the and actually use another crisis that we have and try to solve it at the same, at the same opportunity. So we have another crisis uh, in modern society, which is a good crisis, uh, which, which, which is that we just uh, live too long. I said this as a joke, of course. <laughs> Those who are listening can't can see me sounding, and it's just to, to stress the argument. Obviously, it's, it's great that uh, we have a lot longer life expectancy. But the problem is that our retirement system and pension system and social security systems are not geared to support people for so many years after they, after they retire. Actually, surveys in America show that there are more, more people uh, in the United States who believe they're going to see aliens or meet UFOs, see UFOs or meet aliens, than people who believe they're going to get something from the social security system. So it, it's going to go bankrupt in uh, 2034, according to its own uh, official data in the United States. That's tomorrow morning in historic terms. In Israel, it's 2044, a bit longer, but still. Not, not too far into the future. It's in our lifetime. So the, the solution most people propose is, okay, so let's just extend the retirement age. Let's retire the age of 69, 70, and this way we can uh, save the system. It's a viable solution economically, but I think that socially and from a human point of view, extending the, the period and working more and more years in, uh, in a row just doesn't make sense. What could make sense is to take those sabbaticals, which are periods to freshen up and up, upgrade your skills and come back to the job market and then pay them back at the end. So for example, if I take five periods of six months over the course of my working life, that's two and a half years in total. So I would retire at the age of 69.5 instead of 67, okay? This way I, solve the, I give a response or some sort of a solution to the volatile job market and I also uh, respond to the crisis of retirement because I extend the retirement age, but without making it uh, too unbearable for uh, most people. So I would like to stop here. Um, I know we're almost out of time. Eddie, let me know if you want to take questions or if I should share some remarks. 
Yeah, thank you. Um, I, I think we can take like a couple of questions before we finish. I have a quick question. Um, not about the Shemitah, but about the, the Yovelias. So if like this was your land, right? Like you 50 years ago yeah. and you ended up selling it, but then you died and you had like four sons and how like how does it make sense like how would you figure it out and not how it makes sense how would you figure it out and then with population increases would it just be like one family that keeps having ancestral control of a land yeah well basically yes basically uh the land will stay at the hands of the same tribe and the same family again in theory as far as we know your fellow was not really practiced uh, in ancient times it, it was way too challenging but in theory, at least, the same family would keep the same land uh, over years. You need to remember that back then, population growth was very minimal because uh, most uh, children died uh, by the age, of, the age of five. So then the day you would have maybe three or four sons who can actually inherit your land. Okay. Uh, and also they married to another family, so they inherit the land of their father. It, so it's complex. It, it was sustainable. But the idea is also it, it, there's a message here. There's a message of Private property, but I think in a, in a rectified manner. It says the, the property should be uh, dispersed between everybody. Everybody should have a piece of the national wealth instead of all the national wealth going into one central place uh, as it used to be in, in the other nations around us. So the Yuval the, the, says once every, once every generation, we're going to redistribute the land to make sure that everybody has private property and not only a very small amount of the population. So in this sense, Judaism is not socialist. It's not about public, everything needs to be owned by the public and the and planned, planned economy. I, I don't see any evidence for this in Jewish thought. But it's also not hyper-capitalist in the sense that let's just let the market do whatever it does. And if all the property ends in the hands of one of 10 families, then so be it. No, so it's, it's, there's some sort of a balance here. In a, it's a private property-based uh, society and economy, but it has some checks and balances to avoid over-concentration of, uh, of wealth. Okay, I thank you so much. I think we're at our time. We really appreciate you, Rabbi, for such an amazing class. Thank you so much for all of you who have been listening. This class will be available shortly tomorrow, um, a copy of the recording that you can hear on our YouTube, our learning library, and our podcast. Thank you so much, Rabbi. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.